Hello and welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm Kevin Weber. Well, we keep rolling along here, right? Uh, we're dealing with this pandemic and not being on the baseball field. Getting a little tough at times, but um, keep plugging away and hopefully we'll be back out there doing what we like sometime soon. We've got an episode for you that'll hopefully get you thinking about a few things. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the Federation baseball rule as far as uh, restricting players or coaches to the dugout. Got a little segment on that. I'm going to talk about the automated strike zone that's coming down the chute for, for professional baseball, maybe someday for lower levels as well, but my takes on that, some things to think about. Um, I had the infield fly situation that I talked about last week, and uh, I'm going to revisit that. I got an email about it from uh, David Emerling, and uh, so I'll talk about uh, some things he mentioned in his email and uh, my takes on that. Also, David was kind enough to send in a couple of um, scenarios or situations that he has observed for some games. I'm not going to be able to get to those uh, this episode, but I will in the future. So if David's listening, know that I will eventually get to those. And then uh, finally, I do have um, kind of a, a little bit more unique, I guess, uh, umpire spotlight, this time on John Bible, the longtime um, NCAA umpire and um, Hall of Famer, um, College Baseball Hall of Famer. So that's what we're looking at this week for uh, The Hammer, an umpire podcast, and hopefully you guys are staying safe and healthy and uh, sit back and take a listen and uh, think about some umpiring. Well, over the last few years, there's been lots of discussions about uh, automated strike zones and what that will mean for baseball. But uh, we as umpires, of course, are concerned about what it means for umpires, right? Particularly home plate umpires. It's kind of like um, how they changed the checkout lanes at your supermarkets, right? Where it used to be there was a cashier and a bagger and they take your groceries out to your car and there was at least... You know, two people being employed at every checkout lane. And now we have the uh, do-it-yourself checkout lanes in most places. And you can have one person overseeing four or six or more um, checkout machines. And there's no baggers. You, you do it yourself. Well, I guess, you know, that could be the way that the strike zone and umpiring could be going too. However, as we see, especially in these times of uh, of cell quarantine that we're living through we um we need people to do things uh, technology breaks down um and there's a certain human element that is important to a lot of things that we do even though there are times when machines and computers um, in some ways can do it better but maybe not more effectively uh, than human beings so i'd like to talk about you know what the automated strike zone might mean for, well, Major League Baseball right now. I suppose it's possible that at some point it could work its way down to low levels, but um, with the technology that's going to be needed to be um, as accurate as they want to be, um, that's not going to be for a little while. I mean, I don't think that uh, you're going to have your 
U-Triple-S-A or game day tournaments for, you know, your 12-year-olds with cameras on every every skinned infield field that they have out there to uh, detect um, the strike zone for every player. I mean, I, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So if you're, if you're a professional umpire, obviously this affects you much more. Um, you could see it certainly at the NCAA level, the high-level NCAA baseball, Division One. Um, you know, They'll probably start it in the SEC or something like that, um, or the Big 12, and then, you know, maybe have some kind of automated thing. But I have a feeling that by the time um, it works down to some of the levels I work and some of you work out there, um, we'll probably be done umpiring. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a, a very quick thing that way. So as we've seen with instant replay, um, there's a lot of arguing that's been taken out of the game, which in some ways, you know, kind of makes it not as interesting when you're watching a big league game. Um, you know, somebody comes out and argues a, a tag play at one of the bases and, you know, somebody gets thrown out and there's, there's that. Um, it's nice to get the call right. We all like getting the call right. Um, people still argue balls and strikes, but if a computer is doing it, there's not much to really argue about. Um, so... How does this impact the role of the plate umpire? That's kind of our number one thing. Well, obviously, we still kind of need a plate umpire out there for check swings, um, hit by pitches, uh, pitches that bounce in the dirt and then go through the strike zone that, you know, the computer might say is a strike you know, because it kind of went through that way. Those kind of things, uh, you know, something that f- uh, fools the electronics. Um, interference calls, you need the plate umpire there for that. Box um, and other calls as well. So those kind of things. And um, if, of course, the machine and the technology goes down, then we need somebody there to actually call some balls and strikes and make some corrections. How effective they'll be if they haven't done it in a while, I don't know. Uh, do you need to be standing back there, maybe getting hit in, uh, in your mask and getting a concussion like a lot of professional umpires and minor league umpires and, well, minor leaguers are professional, I guess, um, you know, amateur umpires like most of us out here. Um, we get hit too. I mean, we have that danger. Do you need to be in the slot? Can you be right behind, you know, protect yourself a little bit more behind the uh, catcher? Um, I don't know how that, that's, that's going to change a few things, you know. Um, another question. Um how do you protect the technology? I mean, we've had the whole issues with the Houston Astros over the last uh, year or so, and they, they definitely seem to have gotten a bit of a reprieve from that. If the season would have started right away as, as normal, um, man, they would have been in for something. But um, if baseball does come back, which hopefully it does, um, you know, in, in the major leagues, then I think that a lot of the focus that the Astros had on them had been taken off. But Teams are always looking for that edge to, you know, maybe get more balls called on their hitters and less strikes and vice versa for their opponents, especially when it's their home field. People have been trying to steal signs and get an edge and, you know, water down the field or whatever it is they got to do to try to win a few more ball games and maybe get to the postseason and and win a championship. So they've been doing this for well over 100 years. So how do you protect that? Because, you know, people can try to hack things. So that's an issue as well. Um, how does this change umpire recruitment? Um, good question. I mean, do you need the same skill set? You know, I mean, right now we know that umpires are, are made or, or, or failed on their ability to call balls and strikes. 
um, that that's what gets you promoted from one level to another. You know, whether you're at the lowest levels of baseball or the upper levels, you know, being a good ball strike umpire is the number one thing. If that's taken away, then, you know, how do we handle those? You know, how do you really differentiate people? I guess you could be a good base umpire, but, uh, you know, then we got instant replay there as well. So that definitely changes that and and how um, umpires are supervised and, you um, your accuracy on ball strikes is no longer a big factor in in how you're rated. Um, that that would definitely change things. I don't know if that's good or bad. Probably for the for the not so good. I would say. How does this impact catchers as well? I mean, you know, there are certain catchers that are very good at receiving the ball and presenting it and making it look like a strike. If it's just going to be off of a computer then it, that doesn't really matter, man. You could just put any old lug back there and the guy can catch it and it doesn't matter if he catches it very well or not. It's going to be rule of ball or strike no matter how well he presents it. So you just need somebody maybe he's good at, you know, black and wild pitchers or something like that. So, um, you know, that definitely makes a difference there as far as catchers and stuff. Um, what happens if the system breaks down on the on the day of a game or in the middle of a game? Um, we know we're going to have some issues with that as well. That's going to happen frequently. Um, but the other thing is, you know, more specifically, how will the upper and lower portions of the strike zone be measured? And we know the width of the plate are 17 inches. Um, we know that that's going to be, that can be accurate based on computers and cameras and the way they do it. But the thing is, it's different for every batter as far as the, the upper and lower levels of their strike zone. Pro rules spell out the strike zone's um, upper limit as a horizontal line at the midpoint between the top of the shoulders and the top of the uniform pants, and the lower level as the line at the hollow beneath the kneecaps. Um, so that can change, obviously, from batter to batter, but it could change from at-bat to at-bat for a hitter. Um, also, it could change you know, from game to game and, and month to month based on whether or not uh, they keep the same batting stance or do some things that are a little bit different. Some hitters are known for changing their stance a lot. So it's not always the same. Is that How do you calibrate to computers to do that? Um, do they take in a effect? You know, how, do they, how are they going to measure that? Is it going to be called consistently? Um, that's a really big question that I don't know if the answers to that have been um, resolved yet because remember the other part of uh, the strike zone at least at the pro level is that the the zone is determined from the batter's stance as the batter is prepared to swing at a pitched ball so all interesting questions Um, the big thing is um, the automated strike zone in professional baseball is here to stay it's here they're going to use it Um, hopefully they get it right I don't know how long it's going to take to do that, but that is uh, what they're working on. Um, how effective it is, um, we'll see. Is it going to be better for pitchers or for hitters? If you ask me, it's going to be better for pitchers because there's going to be balls that are called strikes that almost never used to get called strikes that are poorly presented by a catcher um, or, you know, a guy sets up outside and the guy throws it inside or vice versa um, or he reaches across his body or, you know, he – his glove, you know, drives down toward the dirt and he doesn't get a low pitch or whatever it might be. Uh, those are going to be called strikes. So 
I know pitchers sometimes compare, um, complain about umpires not giving them a strike. I mean, you see that at all levels. But more than anything, the people that complain the most are batters that get called for strikes that they think aren't strikes. And if they thought it was not so good, you know, when human beings were doing it, I think they're going to be in for a rude surprise when they get a lot of pitches called strikes on them that um, they didn't think were strikes. If it's consistent, just like it is with a human, if, if a human's consistent, you have no trouble. If a computer's consistent, then you should have very little trouble too. People will adjust to it. Hitters will adjust to it. Everybody will adjust to it. Uh, how consistent will it be? We'll find out, I guess. Hopefully, we'll get to be playing some baseball sometime soon, and uh, you know the big leagues will be back in action, and we can see how this all plays out. So... I guess we'll just all have to uh, stay tuned. Anyway, those are some takes and some ideas that I had on uh, the automated strike zone that is coming down the chute. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I'd like to talk for a little bit about a specific uh, Federation baseball rule. Uh, your ability as an umpire to restrict someone to the dugout. That could be a player or a coach. This is different than NCAA rules, which doesn't allow such a thing, nor pro rules. They, they, you know, you're not doing that as well. The issue here is um, frequently if somebody has done something bad enough to be restricted to the dugout, it seems like they probably should be ejected. And you certainly don't want to be the kind of umpire that just restricts somebody because you don't feel like doing paperwork for an ejection um, or that you're just, I don't know, trying to be nice or something. If they should be ejected, they should be ejected, and you have to deal with the ramifications of that um, and your responsibilities, all right? Um, Usually most state associations, like here in Michigan, they have some kind of penalty if somebody is ejected frequently, uh, it's like a, a one day's suspension, one game. Well, it's not usually one game. It's one playing day's suspension. So if they have double header, they're going to end up missing both the, the games for that next day of play. However, there are some situations in the high school rule book that you are required to restrict somebody whether you want to or not. Um, the first one is if you discover an illegal player. Um, certainly in NCAA and pro rules, you don't have such a, um, a restriction. They're just out or, or whatever might be the case. But um, in high school rules, if you discover an illegal player, then um, they are restricted to the dugout. And in essence, if this is a, a ball player, um, it's basically like an ejection. They just can be on the bench. They don't have to like leave the area sight and sound or something like that. The next situation is the use of an illegal bat. So in Federation rules, when a batter attempts to use or has used an illegal bat, in addition to the batter being declared out, uh, the head coach is restricted for the remainder of the game. 
Now remember, when a head coach is restricted, it basically means that uh, they can coach their team. They just can't come out of the dugout to you know, make a pitching change or to argue a call or something like that. If they violate that, then they would be ejected. So back to the illegal bat. Okay, that's on the first um, violation. On the second violation, the head coach would be ejected, and then on any subsequent violations, um, the replacement head coach is ejected. All right. So there's a difference with the illegal bat stuff with NCAA and pro rules. And I say pro rules. I know some of you are thinking I'm not a pro, but if you're doing certain tournaments like you triple SA tournaments or something, they use pro rules. So you have to know what those are. There's a difference. But in NCAA play, the batter's out. Um, no one's ejected by the rule. All right. And then under pro rules, the batter's declared out and ejected. Now, I had a situation with the illegal bat situ- stuff um, last summer doing some travel league midweek games. They're kind of they're in the league, but they're semi-exhibition, but they're trying to win. And there was this team that became a little bit notorious, this like 14U team, that continually was using an illegal bat. They had done this in other games, and the other teams knew they did this. So when they saw this bat in the hands of a player um, – they, you know, called time and said that it was an illegal bat. And it, the rule was misapplied by some less experienced umpires. I was working the bases um, in one of these games and uh, saw the bat was illegal and uh, declared him out. Technically, in a way, I guess now, as I was looking at the rules here, um, should have ejected the player too because uh, we were playing under USSA rules. So that's pro rule. So he's out and he should be ejected. Um, but anyway, um, so I kind of noticed that as I was going through this anyway, next thing that is a restriction to the dugout, uh, deals with, uh, coaches uniforms. Okay. High school coach who's not in uniform, um, of his team. Okay. is restricted to the bench or the dugout. He can't come out to make pitching changes. He can't coach third base or first base or whatever. Can't do that. Supposed to be in uniform. Um, this is different um, and different uniform regulations for different types of baseball, but uh, that's supposed to be what uh, the ruling is. Sometimes that's hard to enforce, um, especially if you've got poor districts and coaches maybe don't have uniforms um, or they're the only coach. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're trying to run a game the way it's supposed to be run, then you should inform them of that and do that. But sometimes that gets to be a little bit difficult. Next Reason for restricting somebody to the bench um, or dugout for high school games, the head coach must attend the pregame conference if he's available. And if he doesn't if, or if he refuses um, to attend, then he's restricted to the dugout. This isn't necessarily the case in other um, rule sets like the NCAA. Um, the head coach is only required to come out for the first game of a series um, or a non-con game. Um, and in professional baseball, they don't have to come out. They can send somebody out there with their lineup. A final thought is on assistant coaches, um, particularly like when you're working first or you're just working the bases in two-man, and you get that first-base coach that you know thinks he's the head coach and he wants to tell you that you're wrong and that you missed something or complain about box or whatever the heck he's trying to do over there other than coaches players which is really his job and his job's not to be talking to you um 
Now, I have on several occasions um, ejected assistant coaches for doing such things, and usually that's kind of what they warrant. But you could go the route of restricting them to the dugout, which I've done before. And I think I've done it, um, I, I guess in a way I've kind of incorrectly done it, because when you do restrict a, a assistant coach or any coach, it could be the pitching coach or something like that too, then that automatically restricts the head coach as well. It's kind of... Um, you, you know, okay, let's say they have three coaches. They got a pitching coach, they got a first base coach, and their head coach, which, you know, a lot of high school teams have something similar to that. If the first base coach is complaining about whatever, he thinks he missed a call at first, you call the guy out and he thought he was safe or something, then he's restricted. So is the head coach. Now, the, the pitching coach could still come out of the dugout and go visit the mound or whatever the heck, something like that, I guess. But the head coach wouldn't be able to do that. So keep that in mind if that's something that you um, end up putting into place at some point but frequently um you know with a with a warning and and basically the warning has something to deal with you're not the head coach you should not be talking to me if i if there's some disagreement i need to hear from said head coach's first name you know that's basically the way it goes um then you know you can go that route but if the guy's just being belligerent and over the line and deserves an ejection then make sure you you run him um because uh some of these guys need to they need to know their their place in the ball game and it's not their job over there to be arguing with you when you're standing on the first baseline because that can be uh, not a very good situation. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, I think a lot of people don't necessarily know what they should be doing as far as that uh, restricting to the dugout situation for high school rules. And uh, whenever we get back out on the baseball field in high school games, which for me would be in 2021, hopefully, um, I'll keep that in mind as well. So last week I talked about an infield fly situation that uh, a listener had had left a voicemail about. And there was um, a little confusion, I think, uh, with the explanation of the infield fly and what exactly happened. Um, I got an email from um, David Emerling, and um, I, I haven't listened back. I don't usually listen back to the podcast because, you know, I did it, right? So it's not like particularly interesting for me to listen to myself or something. So I assume he's correct that it wasn't clear that the runner uh, that was hit with the ball on top of the head was standing on first base when he was struck. And um, the big issue here is, was there interference? Because when the first baseman drifted over as the ball was drifting and blew back into fair territory, there was some contact between the first baseman and the runner. Now, obviously, if you think that the runner, who has a right, by the way, to be standing on the base, and that's the only place that he is safe, literally, um, if you think that he intentionally tried to um, interfere with the with the first baseman or any other fielder that's over there trying to catch it, um, then obviously you can get interference on that, you know, and, you know, we're going to get our outs, we're going to get a double play basically because it's infield fly and then that runner is going to be out and guys can't advance on that, right? And we're going to kill that play right there too uh, once it hits him on the head just for the interference and for the ball hitting him. So I guess that is a judgment call. I mean, I, I didn't see the play. Um, from what I understood about the play, that um, it wasn't deemed intentional. 
um, and therefore you're not going to get that extra out. All right. Just because you have some contact doesn't mean that it's um, interference or, or obstruction for that matter. Um, think of the famous play in the 75 World Series with Carlton Fisk. If you don't know, look up the famous um, no call um, on a uh, kind of a swinging bunt play in that World Series that was the correct call. Because um, players are doing what they're supposed to be doing. The guy's supposed to be standing on the base, not interfering. He's doing that. The first baseman is trying to catch the ball. Um, you know, the hitter, you know, the um, not the hitter, the uh, the base runner. And there's only so much room he can go while maintaining the base, right? And you know, it's very likely that it could hit him on the head. So that's what happened. And obviously, the guy's reaching across and making some contact with him, trying to catch it as it hits him on the head. That's a weird play. You're gonna probably have that, and it's probably gonna be incidental. So um, that that's what I read into that. But again, I, I don't really know for sure if um, that's exactly what happened. But interesting thing, um, good thing to think about, and um, it kind of takes the, uh, the play to another level. If we do have something similar to that that happens to us in our games, then we can rule on that correctly. Remember, the infill fly rule was put into effect um, many, many years ago, over 100 years ago, so that defenses would not be able to get cheap double plays. All right? Now, because players and coaches and everybody that seems to be involved with baseball other than umpires don't seem to understand the rule, when a, a infield fly hits the ground in fair territory, because that's what it's got to be to be an infield fly, um, then runners feel like they have to move because it looks to them like a forced situation. So it's first and second or it's bases loaded. And like, oh, hit the ground. I've got to go now because now the ball's on the ground. And, and they don't understand that. I mean, it's bad coaching, you know, and it's bad understanding of the game. But because they don't understand it doesn't mean that, you know, infrequently that happens and we get a double play or possibly even a triple play off of something like that uh, because they start running and, and when they don't have to. This isn't a right of the defense to um, be able to confuse them. I mean, you know, the ball is what it is. If they don't, if if they don't know what it is, and they run themselves into double or triple plays, that's on them. But uh, the reason it's there is not so that the defense has a chance to get a double play when the ball hits the ground and they don't know what they're doing. The reason is so that they, you know, because if, if we didn't have this rule in place, every time there was bases loaded or first and second and less than two outs and there's like a just a can of corn pop up on the infield, the guys have to go back, they'd let it drop, they'd have the force play in effect because we know it's not in effect, right? They toss it to a base and throw it and they get a double play every single time. That's what players used to do, you know, like back in, you know, pre-1900 times when they didn't have this. And it was a joke, all right? So that's why they had to put it in effect. It's like all rule changes through the course of baseball history come down to somebody skirting the rule. And they say, this is ridiculous. We can't have this. And so they put something in, in play so that it stops it. And that's what they did, all right? So keep that in mind, too. Um, it's there to protect the offense, not to protect the defense. For this week's umpire spotlight, I'm going to look at a collegiate umpire. I haven't uh, really done that yet. And I'm looking at John Bible, longtime collegiate umpire who's um, off the field now, but still very involved in and collegiate uh, umpiring, uh, particularly with his articles and things that he writes for Referee Magazine and other publications. Last year, 
he received the National Collegiate Umpire Award, which is not given out every year. And with that award, that basically gets you into the College Baseball Hall of Fame. And that award is given out to um, uh, an umpire for that to honor their lifetime of excellence in collegiate umpiring, which definitely John Bible deserves that. Um, Bible, you know, has, you know, 50 plus years of umpiring experience. He was, um, you know, went to professional school and worked a bit in the minor leagues uh, before turning more to the collegiate ranks. He uh, worked in the NFL um, as an official as well and in college football, big time college football. Uh, But he's best known for his college baseball successes. Um, He, of course, you know, Moved up the ladder with with uh, college baseball and worked numerous Division two and Division three and NAIA and JUCO playoffs. Uh, obviously, he was successful at the Division one level and worked over twenty five uh, regional and super regionals at the D one level, and that led him to seven NCAA College World Series. Um, assignments, which is quite impressive. He was a national coordinator for Division I baseball umpires from 1990 to 96. Um, During the time he was umpiring, too, he worked lots of conference tournaments. He worked eight Southwest Conference tournaments, 12 Big 8 Conference tournaments. He was the um, conference umpire coordinator for several conferences like the Southland Conference, uh, the Western Athletic Conference, uh, Southwest Conference, and the Lone Star umpire supervisor as well. Um, The best thing about uh, John that I have found is is his great articles that he um, writes frequently. Um, Almost seems like almost every month in Referee Magazine there's a John Bible, at least one John Bible um, article, and he always has good insights about things. Um, And uh, definitely somebody that all of us can learn from. Um, You can certainly do some Google searches on him and find lots of his articles out there that are free to read even if you don't get Referee Magazine. Now, with working Cows World Series in 1979, 1980, 1983, 1984, and also the I know that ruffles some feathers for some people, but he did take the assignment. So he worked um, part of the 1984 American League Championship Series um, when the regular MLB umpires were on strike. So I guess he's got, you know, a little bit of Major League experience, a little bit of uh, NFL experience as a referee, of course, big-time college football experience, um, and um, big-time college baseball experience. Um and he's also um, knows the stuff too. Is an uh, excellent writer. He's a law professor at uh, Texas State University, or at least he was. I don't know if he still is now, but uh, uh, that it was you know his profession outside of his officiating uh, endeavors. Anyway, um, John Bible, a very interesting um, past and somebody that we can all learn from. I urge you to um, to search the archives on Referee Magazine and. Look through some of the articles that he's written over the years, and uh, I'm sure there are there are several that you'll come across that are a topic that you'd like to read something about, and um, you know take a look at that and and know when you're reading it. Whenever you read a John Bible um, article, that this is a guy that's got a lot of experience and has been through all kinds of uh, 
situations in all kinds of sports. Um, so he kind of he knows what he's talking about. He's he's somebody that that all of us can learn something from. Um, you know, he he started out as a uh, you know an old school kind of umpire that had to defend himself on the field. You know how it was. You gotta you know you gotta stand by your call. You gotta be able to argue. You gotta be able to be the person in charge and everything. And then you know has realize how umpiring's changed and he, he does write about that uh, from time to time too how it's you know it's a different type of thing now than it was when he first started but uh, definitely somebody to check out um, and that's our umpire spotlight this week John Bible that brings us to the end of another episode of the hammer and umpire podcast thanks for listening once again Hopefully you guys are uh, keeping your drive going out there and uh, your desire to umpire and you're getting yourself ready for when you finally are able to get out on the baseball field. Here, you know, I I was thinking that we might be able to get out in the first part of May, maybe, but um, we'll find out here at the end of the month if uh, restrictions in the state of Michigan are continued or not. Um, I have a feeling that, you know, some might be lifted and some might not be, but I don't know if baseball games are going to be one of the things that are allowed. So maybe by the mid, mid-May mid or end of May, maybe we'll get lucky, maybe June. I know some of the um, the big summer tournaments that we have here at the local colleges, at least one of them, and decided that they're just going to be closed all summer, so they're not going to have any tournaments there. So that's cutting things down. Um, I'm trying to assign for my travel league that I signed for, and we're going to try to start the first week of May, but that's kind of on hold right now. So everything's just kind of on hold. That's really the thing, the uncertainty of everything. Um, but nonetheless, um, we keep plugging away and keeping our minds sharp so that, um, we're ready to go. If you have any questions or comments, um, definitely feel, feel free to, um, send me an email, spawnfusion06 at yahoo.com. Um, send me a message, uh, via Facebook. Um, you can do it during, through the messenger or just on the page or whatever you want to do at the hammer podcast. I'm on Twitter at Kevin R. Weber. You can tweet me. I've had people do that as well. And um, you know, I, I, I've got some scenarios from other people that um, I'm going to talk through and look look through and uh, get that on our next episode. I think there's some good stuff there. And uh, keep things just moving along here so that we're ready to go. And I know it's tough out there. Stuff on me is hard sometimes even. You know, sometimes you don't want to think about baseball or other things because you know what you're missing. I was talking to one of my uh, fellow assigners, my kind of mentor assigner, Bruce Dome. And we were talking about how, yeah, sometimes you you got to deal with things as an assigner, like somebody's turning back a game, or there's a bunch of rainouts, or whatever's going on, some an, an annoyances of of the job. But uh, we both would be very happy to have those annoyances right now and have to deal with them. Um, I'd be really happy to have a whole bunch of games this week and feeling really tired, you know, uh, as an umpire as well. And I'm sure you guys feel the same way. But that's the way it is, you know, in our own way, in our own mind. Um, we got to keep carrying on and keep calling strikes. <laughs>